please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God to Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 3. We've been in a series of messages through Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, and we find ourselves this morning with the bulk of chapter 3 and the end of the book. The Apostle Paul, like any balanced Christian, moves from the theological to the practical. Paul didn't simply give a lot of theological platitudes. He also was very interested in applying the truths that we learn from the Bible to our everyday lives. And we see that beautifully in this book. As he spent chapter 2 talking about the second coming of Christ and all of those eschatological realities associated with it, the rise of the Antichrist, as well as the spirit of the Antichrist, which is in our own day prevalent. But then he moves on to a problem in the church, beginning with verse 6 and continuing really through verse 15. And he's going to address this problem and give us instruction concerning it, because this particular problem and difficulty has been around for a long time, and it's around today even as it was in Paul's day. Let me give you an outline of the message this morning. We're going to look at, first of all, this passage speaks to the problem of idleness and laziness in Christ's church. And we'll see that in verses 10 through 13. And then secondly, this passage points out the need for godly discipline in Christ's church. And we'll look at that at verse 6 and verses 14 and 15. Thirdly, this passage offers a wonderful example of godly productivity. In Christ's church, and we'll see that in verses 7 through 9. And then finally, a conclusion and benediction in verses 16 through 18. And so, with an outline of the message, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to bless our study of His Word together this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and experience his presence only. And so grant that to us as we humbly wait on thee. Move in our hearts, collectively and individually. And we'll give you all the praise and glory and honor for what we will do in our lives during this hour. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul has a tendency to be a little ADD, I believe. I know that because I suffer from that. And when you read some of his writings, sometimes he starts with a particular theme and he'll move on to another theme and come back to that theme or that ramification of the theme. And I believe that's true today. I spent all this past week uh, wrestling with the structure of this passage. And uh, that explains why we will begin with the heart of the passage and work our way out. And I think you'll see a method to this madness as we go along looking at Scripture. First of all, this passage speaks to the problem of idleness and laziness in Christ's church. Look at verses 10 through 13 with me. The heart of the problem is found in the heart of the passage. There were some in the church who were living lives characterized by idleness, laziness, and indifference 
to God. The problem, you see, is in verse 10. Even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Now, Paul's command leaves no room for guessing about this particular problem. There were people that were lazy and idle in Christ's church. And Paul's attitude towards that was that these folks should not even eat if they're not going to work, if they're not going to devote themselves to good works. And when I say works, you know, the Bible has a multifaceted understanding of the concept of work. The Bible speaks of the works of God. God is at work whenever he brought about the creation, the created order. The Bible says he worked six days and rested on the seventh day. The Bible speaks of good works that we Christians are to engage in according to a sacred scripture. The Bible speaks of faith working through love. And so we come away with this sense that work is not a bad thing, but a good thing. In fact, work was given to Adam and Eve prior to the fall. Remember, they were placed in the garden and they were told to subdue uh, their creator order. It's only after the fall that work became more difficult. And Adam was told, uh, by, the spread of, by the sweat of your brow, you will harvest crops and take care of the earth. And so work is a good thing. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But these particular individuals were doing no work at all. They were taking advantage of the hard work of others. They had a sense of entitlement, that they were somehow exempt from any kind of work in the marketplace or in Christ's church. Now let me hasten to say, this does not apply to those who want to work but can't. There are many people that want to work, but they can't work, due to physical limitations, perhaps. The handicapped, we think of the elderly, especially widows. Paul is talking about those who are able to work, but won't. Those who are able to work, but won't. And they're in the body of Christ. Now notice the specific indictment in verse 11. He spells out the specifics of the problem. He says, the perpetrators' lives were consumed with a lack of discipline and being busybodies. They were not disciplined individuals. We think of busybodies as those who refuse to work and they spend their energies investigating and often criticizing the work of others. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said this, quote, The lazy Christian has his mouth full of complaints when the active Christian has his heart full of comforts. And that's very true. We become like armchair quarterbacks. You know, it's the beginning of football season. And I don't know about you, but I can sit there and watch a game with my popcorn and my soda, and uh, all of a sudden I'm an expert on what the quarterback should have done, the pass he threw. Why did he drop the ball? My mother could have thrown a ball better than that, you know, and that sort of thing. And we become armchair quarterbacks. We become experts. Now, that's kind of a humorous picture of what a busybody is. They become an expert of what needs to be done, what needs to take place. Well, you know, now the church, they need to do this. They need to do this. They need to have this program and that program. When they are unwilling to lift a finger to do anything in order to facilitate ministry in Christ's church. Then the correction, verse 12. Look at what Paul says. Paul commands these people to work, earn a living, and provide for their needs. 
And the inference is clear. They must be done with this lazy sense of entitlement and stop sponging off the work and kindness and generosity of others. You know, part of the difficulty when I was reading this passage this past week, I've always uh, looked at this passage through the context of secular work. Secular work, your job out there, the things that we do. But it's very important to understand the background and the context of this passage. The Bible doesn't make a hard distinction between work in the world and work in Christ's church. I read a wonderful article by Brian Chappell, the stated clerk of our denomination at PCA this past week. He spoke of vocation and occupation. He says many Christians have these words confused. Our vocation in life is our calling from God, and it involves what we do for a living, how we work. But the priority is the kingdom of God. Our occupation is the actual work itself. Some work as attorneys, some work as an electrician, work as an assistant of some kind, a dentist, a doctor, and so forth. Sometimes we ignore this distinction, and we blur the distinction between the two. And Brian Chappell says, we lost our sense of vocation. God calls everyone, first and foremost, to be builders of the kingdom. What you do in life is your occupation, is subordinate to your vocation. As you seek the Lord's will and you pray and you decide, what, Lord, do you want me to do? He also speaks of identity, that it should come before our labor. The way he puts it is label before labor. And what he says is man was created in the image of God in Genesis. The first three chapters, we see that clearly. And the Bible emphasizes who we are over and above what we do. If we find our sense of identity based on what we do for a living, our occupation, there is something seriously wrong. And people that do that, just like in the world, have a tendency to get target fixation on what they do, how much money they make, where they stand in the particular hierarchy of the company they work for. The Bible emphasizes who we are over and above what we do. And when we understand our proper label as made in the image of God, that's what gives our occupation dignity. And when we go to our work, Monday through Friday or Saturday, we demonstrate a dignity as those made in the image of God and what it should look like to be productive in the marketplace. Paul was a tent maker, for example, as well as an apostle. And he consistently saw his trade as a means to furnish support so that he could do the work of the kingdom. How do you view yourself and your work? The biblical model is that we're all called primarily to the work of Christian service. And we're all called to provide for the needs of ourselves and our households. We see this in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Christians did everything together. They ate their meals together. They spent time in each other's homes. They developed a sense of fellowship. 
Jesus. They even practiced commerce. Some sold pieces of property, and they brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. There wasn't this sharp distinction about, I've got a job to do. I don't have time for kingdom work or for Christ's church. No. Christ's church was central. It was a priority, and everything else came behind it. Christians did everything together. They all worked hard, and they took care of each other. You see, that's why Paul gives a consolation in verse 13. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in well-doing. Why does he say that? Because Paul is looking at this through the lens that this is the kingdom of God. These are the people of Christ's church. And so do away with that distinction, that faulty distinction between work out there and work in here. The Bible doesn't acknowledge it. That's why Paul is trying to give a word of consolation in verse 13. Don't grow weary of well-doing. You know the old 80-20% rule. 20% of the people in Christ's church do 80% of the work. And that's why we have to beg for Sunday school teachers and for those to work in the nursery. Or to work on a committee. There's something wrong with that. I struggled and struggled when I thought about this passage. I thought most of our people, if not all of our people, are gainfully employed. But that's just the half of it. It's the work of Christ's church. And that's why he's telling those who are working themselves to the bone, don't grow weary of well-doing. Because you see, when 20% do 80% of the work in Christ's church, it's easy for those who are working so hard to get frustrated. To get down. They're always filling the voids that others should be filling. Let me challenge you with that. This passage speaks to the problem of idleness and laziness in Christ's church. And you may be gainfully employed in the job out there, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're eliminating idleness in here, in Christ's church. And Paul would give a word of consolation and encouragement to those who are laboring in the church. Don't be guilty of that sort of thing. Well, this passage presents or seeks to identify the problem of idleness and laziness in Christ's church. Now, second thing, let's move out a little bit. This passage points out the need for godly discipline in Christ's church. Look at verse 6, the first verse, and then the concluding verses of this particular section, verses 14 and 50. With a clear understanding of the problem, it's let's move to the outer portions. And Paul addresses this problem. Paul calls for loving and firm discipline of those guilty of idleness and laziness. There are two things here. Paul, first of all, instructs with apostolic authority. Look at verse 6a. This is no ancillary matter, as Paul offers a command in connection to the church and how they should respond to this phenomenon. And I want you to notice Paul offered the same command in verse 12, which we just looked at, when he spoke directly to those guilty of sinning. This is a serious problem. It's not something just to be said, well, that'll take care of itself. They'll find a Sunday school teacher. They'll find an usher. No. Paul says, we command you not to be idle. Verse 6b, he speaks of the tradition which you receive from us. You know, they're good and bad traditions. Some people, uh, we Protestants, have a tendency to shy away from anything when we hear the word tradition. Jesus himself in Matthew 7 
dealt with the Pharisees and their traditions. But you see there, the Pharisees were invalidating the word of God for the sake of their traditions. What Paul is talking about is the apostolic tradition. And so traditions are practices developed from theology. For example, the Lord said, and often as you take this cup and eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. He didn't say how often we should do it. And our tradition of our church right now is that we take communion on the first of every month. So we take our theology and we put it to work. And we develop godly traditions. Well, that's what Paul is saying. He's speaking from the Apostles' standpoint. All that has been developed thus far. Just like we quote the Apostles' Creed on Sunday morning. That is a tradition of ours. But it is supportive of the whole counsel of God's Word. Look at verse 14. Additionally, he calls for obedience to our instruction. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be of no advantage to you. So Paul instructs with apostolic authority. This is a serious matter. He is commanding what must be done, and he, as an apostle, has the authority to command it. Now notice particularly, secondly, Paul calls for a withdrawal of fellowship in these verses, verses 6 and 14 and 15. This is a model of discipline. That's why we read Matthew 18 this morning, verses 15 through 18. Our Lord Jesus gave us, just like in the Lord's Prayer, a very general, broad model of discipline. If somebody offends you, go to them privately. If they don't listen to you and there's no repentance, take some else with you from the church. If they still don't listen and still don't repent, then tell it to the church. And let that person be a tax collector or a sinner. And so we seek to apply the Lord's general instruction in harmony with everything else that we read in the Scriptures. And so for us, we have admonition, first of all, then suspension from the sacraments. The next, communication. And for officers, we depose them from office. Those are the various gradations of discipline. And not all the sins are the same. Some are private and some are public. But apparently this idle, lazy behavior began somewhat privately. We know that because Paul began to address it in his first letter to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 10 through 12, he says, we urge you, and he goes on to say, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You see, Paul began to address this problem in his first letter, and he did it in a rather gentle way. But now, things have gotten out of hand. There was a time when, individually and privately, members of the church could have gone to some of these individuals and admonish them for what they were doing or what they were not doing in this case. But nevertheless, the sin became public and widespread, which explains why Paul deals with the sin so firmly and extensively here in the second letter. Now let me point out also, discipline is a joint venture, ladies and gentlemen. It is not something reserved for the elders of Christ's church. The Bible presents a model where all God's people are called to participate in the discipline of the church. And as cases become more difficult, yes, indeed, the session is called to deal with that. The elders are called. But we all are called to discipline. 
In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews, if you don't receive discipline, you're not a child of God. We receive discipline from Him to make us fit for heaven. And that's why we ought to be engaged in disciplining one another. Now, unless you think this is harsh and unloving, Paul goes on to say in verse 15, Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. What does this look like? We are to withdraw fellowship from those who live idle, lazy lives. We are not to condone that kind of behavior. We need to challenge one another, not just to have gainful employment in the world, but also to be working in Christ's church. Because that infection of thinking that when I work, I go out there, and when I come in here, I am served. We've got to get rid of that. This is not a cafeteria to be served. It's a place for service. And every Christian ought to have a job, and every Christian ought to have fellowship with a group in Christ's church. And we aim as a session to develop that. Let me challenge you with that this morning. Stop thinking that somebody else will volunteer to do something. When in fact the Lord, because of your vocation, is moving you to do it. If you're gifted with financial matters, perhaps the Lord would have you sit on a finance committee. Or maybe do a seminar on managing your money, which many Christians and many pagans need. That's an example of vocation. If you're gifted as a teacher, perhaps the Lord would use you in an educational sense in our church. There are all sorts of ways. If you connect with young people, perhaps the Lord would move you in our college group and also in our youth group. There are all sorts of ways to pray for and discover what is my vocation. How is the Lord calling me to serve where I'm at right here, right now? And so we are to practice some discipline toward one another and lovingly but firmly move each other to be productive citizens in God's kingdom. Now the third point, this passage offers a wonderful example of godly productivity. Now look at verses 7 through 8. Paul gently reminds the Thessalonians of his example, not only of himself but also his companions, in the gospel ministry. He tells them in verse 7 to follow his example because he and his companions did not act in an undisciplined manner. Verse 8, Paul had no faulty sense of entitlement. He paid his bills and he took care of his needs. And he says, with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. What if every church member had that attitude in Christ's church? I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and work night and day so that one or two individuals or a small minority might not be burnt out with all that they give and all that they devote to the furtherance of Christ's kingdom. Verse 9, Paul relinquishes even his right to financial support, despite the fact that as an apostle, he had a right to financial support from all the churches. And so in summary, Paul was a disciplined, responsible, and humble servant of Jesus Christ. He was no stranger to hard work and toil inside the church or in the marketplace. And we need to follow his examples. You see, this is nothing more than what's happened in biblical history. Paul follows in the example of Daniel. Who was Daniel? A common Jew 
who found himself in exile and all of a sudden exalted to a high place in government service of a pagan king. And what a difference he made. We're not talking about an ordained minister here. We're talking about Daniel. What about Nehemiah? Paul follows in his footsteps too. One who did the work of God, how? By preaching sermons and teaching lessons? No, by rebuilding the city of God and the wall surrounding it. Everything that we do, whether it's construction or plumbing or teaching or anything, is a part of our vocation. And Nehemiah did the work of God as he built the city and the wall of God. And you see Daniel and Nehemiah, as well as the Apostle Paul, all three follow in the category of our Lord Jesus. In John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus didn't say, I have a passion for preaching, or I have a passion for healing, or I have a passion for this or that. No, it was for the kingdom of God. And whatever else he did, in terms of work as a carpenter, or in terms of teaching on a hillside, he saw it all as his vocation as the Son of God. John 5, 17, he says, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. We all need to hear that loud and clear. Now, the willingness to work hard is a sign of the grace of God in your life, believe it or not. John six twenty seven, the Lord Jesus says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. What is the Lord saying? He's saying, look, you can spend your life doing your occupation and giving yourself to the grind of the nine to five, or you can see it as all a part of your vocation. And that first and foremost, you believe in the Lord Jesus. He has saved you, and he has called you to serve in a particular sphere in the world and in his church. And you do so at his pleasure and according to his power and grace. That's why he said in John 6, 29, when the crowd said, what should we do to work the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you and everyone around you will witness the actual work of God in changing a sinner's heart and life. It's the grace of God. And who could forget the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 10? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Think about that. By the grace of God, I am an administrative assistant. I am a professional educator. I am an engineer. I am a banker. I am an accountant. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, Paul says, of the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. When the grace of God is propelling you, when the grace of God is apparent in Christ's church, then we will start trampling on one another to get to the position of being able to teach. When Lisa asks for volunteers, we'll have people stampede one another to sign up. 
Because just like the Apostle Paul, when you're experiencing the grace of God, when you're feeling God's pleasure, you can't help but want to serve and work. And all that leads to peace. You'll notice the conclusion of benediction in verses 16 through 18, especially verses 16 and 18. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. When Christ's church is working, when people are not being busybodies and not being critics and armchair quarterbacks, there is great peace. And may God bring that about. When everyone is doing their part, there is peace and joy in the body of Christ. Now, all this begins with a personal relationship to Christ. When you look at the work of God in your own life, when you say that I have met the Lord Jesus, I have trusted in his finished work on the cross to pay for my sins and to give me the righteousness that God demands and that I lack and only Jesus can provide grace of God is active in your life, one of the signs of that will be your labor in Christ's church on behalf of the kingdom, regardless of what you do as your occupation in the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this magnificent letter and this word of exhortation this morning. Lord, I pray that you would bless us with those, not busybodies, but those who are busy at the work of the kingdom, devoting ourselves to King Jesus. And Lord, whatever we do in the world, that we would see that as a means only to allow us to fulfill our vocation of being sons and daughters of God, preparing and being prepared for the eternal kingdom. Lord, make it so. If there are any cold hearts this morning, perhaps because we've never met the Lord Jesus, we don't know the joy of being productive and serving his kingdom, I pray you would change them by your sovereign grace. Bring us all, Lord, to a measure of repentance and help us to devote ourselves to service in the church and in the world. Pray all of these things in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.